Okay, good morning, everybody. We'll get started chatting, even though we're still three or four minutes ahead of time. Y'all come down as far as you can to the front, because we're family. Oh, my goodness. Which one is water and which one is vodka? Uh, water. Oh, okay. That'll be fine. Um, <clears throat> I'm Dan Fountain, and I'm a recovering surgeon. Uh, and moved from surgery to community health because to me that's where the action really is. Surgery puts people back together after they fall apart. Community health tries to keep them from falling apart. So my wife and I spent 35 years in the Congo. It was then called Zaire and it was a country that needed much help it still needs much help. If you get a hold of the new edition of Operation World and read about Congo, you may weep like I wept. Because it's a country, the richest country in Africa, maybe the richest country in the world, where the average income in the rural part of Congo is $50 a year. It's a country that's filled with violence, rape, genocide, corruption, a whole long list of horrible things, and it's, all of that is taking place in a country where 90% of the people consider themselves Christian. And that's hard to put together. But what it says to me and to us is that although Congo has been thoroughly Christianized or churchified or whatever you want to say, no change has happened, no transformation has happened. Discipleship has not taken place. The kingdom of God has not yet come. And that's where we need to be, what we need to be concerned about. Uh, I want to tell you a little story. Before we get started, <clears throat> uh, January the 16th, 2009, a miracle occurred in New York City. Some of you may remember it. In fact, all of you will remember it when I mention it. A U.S. Air Airbus took off from LaGuardia Airport, and two minutes up in the air, over the Bronx, it ran into a flock of Canadian geese that knocked out both engines. And so Captain Sullenberger had three minutes <clears throat> to make an incredible number of critical decisions. Where was he going to land? It probably took him two seconds to make that decision. He had to shut off the motors. He had to make sure the auxiliary motor was active. He had to change all kinds of settings to operate on the auxiliary motor. He had to be absolutely certain of his glide, of his banking, of everything. So how many decisions he made, I have no idea. He made every one correctly. And 136 people walked off the plane. 
in the middle of the Hudson River. Now, if Captain Sullenberger had had the, oh goodness, where's the emergency manual? And what page is that? 136 people would have died. He had everything here, and he had everything from here that was needed to come out through here. He knew the theory, he knew the practice, because like every captain on a commercial airliner, he's back on the simulator once a month going through all of this. So this is what we call internal discipline. Internal discipline, having it here, but knowing how to make use of it. Well, that to me is a marvelous metaphor of the Christian life. We need to have the emergency manual, and it's more than an emergency manual, here and here, and then able to put it into practical application. So, you may be wondering, well, why do you drag up the Bible when we're talking about community health? I mean, community health is outhouses and, and clean drinking water and washing hands and, and having adequate nutrition and also dealing with agriculture and stuff like that. So what in the world does the Bible have to do with that? And I'm going to give you four reasons why the Bible is so crucial. The first reason is a philosophical reason. The foundation of science is here. Now, where is it in the Bible? Where do you read the foundation of science? In what particular passage of the Bible do we find the foundation of science? Y'all are scientists. The first chapter of Genesis, where it says very clearly, God created the heavens and the earth in order, in perfect order. Now, Moses wasn't a uh, quantum physicist or an astronomer, but he was inspired by God, who is a quantum physicist and an astronomer. Moses knew that God had put everything in its proper place to function according to specific laws that God has built into everything. So here is the foundation of all that we are doing as physicians, nurses, PTs, whatever. And we need to know that. Science has not come out of Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam, although Islam did develop in the first few centuries of its existence until the Ayatollah shut it down. But science has developed within the Christian worldview because of what's in the Bible. So that's reason number one. <clears throat> and I want to get this through to you. Be ready at all times to be able to answer anyone who asks you to explain why you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, why you believe the Bible is God's word, and why is it so important. 
it concerns me somewhat that, generally speaking, in our evangelical culture, people are biblically illiterate, especially young people. You have it on your iPod. But if you have the Word of God on your iPod, that's wonderful. You can refer to it any time. But you need to pull it up and then hit File, Save As, and type in Heart. Get it here. Like Sully Sullenberger had everything in his mind and in his heart. So make the Bible... uh, a part of your very inner nature. The second reason is historical. Jesus is the first health provider, the first health professional, if you will. Modern medicine began about 6.30 p.m. on a Saturday evening on the shore of a lake called Galilee in 30 A.D., You read about it in Mark chapter 1. That's the first clinic in history. The first clinic open to everyone. The first clinic open to everyone no matter what their their disease situation was. Uh, No discrimination of economically or gender-wise or anything. That was where all that we're doing today comes from. That's where it started. We need to know that history. And, of course, Jesus repeated this many, many times throughout his ministry. How many clinics he held, we have no idea. But that's where all that we're doing got started. And he passed it on to us. He said, go preach, teach, and heal. Heal the sick. And if you read the history of the early church, and there's a marvelous book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark, who was professor of sociology, I think, at Baylor. It's a fascinating book on what the early believers did that transformed European and Middle Eastern culture. And it literally did. The Christian faith because of what the believers did, eliminated totally and forever the Greek and Roman gods and goddesses. I mean, they're historical phenomena, but nobody worships Zeus anymore. They're gone. And it was primarily compassionate care of the sick that literally blew everybody away. Why are these atheists, because that's what they were called, caring for our sick people? But then Jesus said, you do it. He said to his followers, and that's us, you do it. Jesus did not give the mandate to healing to Caesar. Back in the 50s, as I was preparing, in the 60s as we started, I kept hearing missions, mission leaders, Say, well, you know, the time has come to get out of medical missions because governments are taking over. Folks, governments can't do it. In this country, in Africa, in India, or where, because compassion is not there. The spiritual core of health and of healing is not there. Now, 
Does that mean we should ignore governments? Or no, of course not. If we can bring compassionate care into a government health structure, and that's being done in many places and even in this country, that's wonderful. But we cannot say governments have taken over, therefore we Christians can go home. And I also want you to remember half the population of the world today has no access to health care, to primary health care. But 42 years ago, there was a big conference in a town that used to be called Alma'ata, now it's Almaty, by the World Health Organization, where they called the health ministers of all the nations of the world together to discuss primary health care. And those of you who are in my generation, I'm sure you're, you know of the, the Declaration of Alma'ata. And the slogan and the, the, the basic message of that conference was, we have to get primary health care to everybody before we start building tertiary level hospitals and big institutions. Now this was a secular environment, but the World Health Organization realized people are sick. They need care. And that's exactly what Jesus said, and yet half of the world's population doesn't have it. So something is wrong, and we have responsibilities. Here's a third reason why God's word is so important. At the center of the culture of all of the peoples of the world is our assumptions about the transcendent. Now, I would dare say 95% of the peoples of the world, that means God, or Allah, or gods and goddesses, uh, spiritual powers. For Richard Dawkins, I suppose it means matter, or logic, or something like that, but it's still transcendent. So at the center of every culture are these assumptions about the transcendent, God and the gods. And that, of course, is true of us. So here's a common point between cultures. If we can begin our dialogues at that central point in their understanding of God or the spiritual powers or the transcendent and then share our understanding of who is at the center of the universe, we have a common denominator uh, from which we can work. So there's a bunch of questions that are at the center of every person. They may not be in their conscious mind, but they're still there. But they do come to the conscious mind of many. And incidentally, that's why many in the other Abrahamic faith, as it's called, are coming to faith in Christ. Because Islam can't answer these questions satisfactorily. So here's a very simple diagram I've used through the years that makes this uh, hopefully clear. This is just a schema of culture. The outer layer of culture is our behavior, what we do, customs, and so on. And that's what we see when we travel from one country to another, where these people dress differently, eat differently, and so on. But where does our behavior come from? It comes from what we think is good for us. And these values come from our beliefs, what we think is right, 
But here's the real origin, our understanding of reality. Now, it's on that deep level that many, many people don't even stop to think, and yet it is that worldview, what is down there, that determines the outward layer. In other words, we do what we do, we live as we live, our lifestyle, our behavior, basically comes from our understanding of God. The Bible says that. Uh, informed psychology says that. Cultural anthropology says that. So we need to know what's here so that our assumptions about the transcendent are what they should be. So a culture functions from the inside out. And by the way, as we are working with people to talk about health education or nutrition education or agriculture or whatever it is, this is where we have to start. Now, my talk tomorrow will deal with that in much more depth. Uh, in fact, we have a whole course on community health, both an active workshop that we do twice a year in Florida and now it's in a DVD format, and you can check that out at the MedSend booth. Uh, and much of that deals with this issue <clears throat> of cultural dynamics. And the fourth reason is a theological reason. I've already mentioned that. Uh, what happens down here determines our behavior. <clears throat> Back to Captain Sullenberger. He had basic assumptions in his deep mind based on science, based on aeronautics, based on mechanics. And when those two engines conked out over the Bronx, he didn't have to go think about them. They were automatic. They were, everything he did was based on what was in that central level, and that's what we must do. So we need to find out who God truly is. And that's a difficult issue. We have two marvelous sources of truth, here and the Holy Spirit. And let me just share a little bit of my personal journey. Uh, God called me as a young boy into medical missions. And I knew the Lord as far back as I can remember uh, and studied the Bible as a boy, uh, the Schofield Bible, the King James Version, but still it's God's Word. <clears throat> but when I was getting ready to go to college, I was headed toward a very, very secular, hedonistic university. And I wondered, well, how can I get help studying the Bible? Are there commentaries or whatever? And God spoke very clearly to me. First uh, John 2, 27. And it says this, and I'm not quoting it in the King James Version, because it's a little difficult. But it says, as for you, Christ has poured out his Holy Spirit on you. As long as his Spirit remains in you, 
You do not need anyone to teach you. The Spirit teaches you about everything, and what He teaches is true, not false. Obey the Spirit's teaching and remain in union with Christ. And when God said that to me, I said, okay, that's fine. And so as you study the Word, go to the author and say, what do you mean by this? Uh, and you'll be surprised at the thoughts that come into your heart. Now, that in no ways means don't use commentaries, don't read other books, because God has also spoken to other people. Uh, and I profited from the wisdom and knowledge and understanding of many other uh, spirit-inspired people. But our primary source is God himself. So here's an enlargement of that central core of culture, and it's also the central core of your own personality. And once again, what we understand here affects our doctrines, but more than that affects our beliefs about everything. Those determine what we think is good for us, and out of that comes our behavior. And so we need to do our homework as to our understanding of God, because everything else comes from that understanding. Now, think briefly about this other Abrahamic faith. They believe in Allah. Is Allah a different God than Jehovah? Uh -huh. Well, I see one head going like this. And I'll add mine. <laughs> there is only one God. There are different understandings of God. And the understanding of Allah differs from our understanding of the Lord God Jehovah. And out of their understanding of Allah comes a lot of things that's making life in the world difficult. Especially for women. And of course, violence. So that's an example of why we need to know who this God is in whom we believe so that we can behave as we should behave. And if you're in clinical medicine, health is a theological issue, healing is a theological issue. And many of the chronic disease problems that we see every day in the clinic basically go back to theological issues. Who is God? Because we bear the image of God, and if we have a distorted image of God, we have a distorted image of ourselves. And even things like obesity and the whole uh, spectrum of stress-related diseases come from these deep issues. And all that we assume about nature, about ourselves, about evil, about disease, health, and so forth, derive from our understanding of God. So, let's, let me give you a story. There's a wonderful Indian Christian philosopher named Vishal Mangalwadi. He's 
third generation Christian from the Mizoram state, uh, got his education in India, but then with his wife came to Wheaton, and I think got a PhD in missiology or something like that, and then went back to India. And he's been a leader in the Christian community in India now for 30-some years. Very articulate, very concerned about social issues, particularly about the caste system and so forth. I was in a conference in the Bihar state four years ago, and he was there speaking, and he told a story. Early on in his ministry, and he was then in western India, a group of subsistence farmers from a town some distance away came to see him. said, sir, we're very poor. We have just a little bit of land, and we work hard, and we work hard. We just can't get ahead, and, and we see no way out. Could you come and help us? He said, sure, that's why I'm here. So he went out to visit them and saw the conditions in which they live. Each had an acre or two of land and a little mud house and a few goats and chickens and trying to raise a little bit of rice or whatever. Uh, but they were located near a big river. This was in a flat valley. Periodically there would be floods on this river and everything would be washed away and they'd have to start all over again. In the middle of that river, on a sandy island, was an enormous temple, stone temple. And he said, what is that? Oh, they said, that's a temple to the river goddess. Actually, it's a fairly well-known temple, a tourist attraction. And he said, well, what do you do out there? Oh, we take sacrifices out to the river goddess and ask for protection and help. He said, yeah, but floods still come. Well, it's because, you know, we displeased her or something. Something's gone wrong, and so we have to take more sacrifices out to her. And he said, now, that temple's in the middle of that river. You're telling me there are floods every few years. Yes. How long has that temple been out there? A thousand years. A thousand years. And it stood in, through all of those floods? And they said, yeah, of course. He said, huh. Your ancestors must have been rather smart people to be able to build a solid structure like that in the middle of a river that's constantly flooding. And they said, of course they were smart people. So then he said, well, if they were that smart, why, instead of building a temple to the river goddess, didn't they build a stone dam to keep the river from flooding? He said their mouths dropped open. Such a thought had never occurred to them because it was not part of their worldview. It was not part of their assumptions about nature because these are animistic people or traditional tribal people. They accept nature as it is. Whatever nature does, nature does. And you know, you just were victims of whatever happens. Nature is unpredictable and violent. And again, what can you do? They fear nature. They worship nature. This is all over Africa. It's all over Latin America. And of course, most of Asia. It's all over the Islamic world. And Hindu Buddhist culture is primarily 
traditional, tribal, or animistic. They have no concept of controlling nature. You do. We do. And that's where it comes from. Right here in the very first chapter of Genesis, and the very first communication between Yahweh and the man and the woman was, take charge. It says, God blessed them and said to them, fill the earth with people and take control over the animals and the plants and the land that I have created. Work with me to take care of it uh, and to improve it. This, you see, is so deeply ingrained in our culture, we don't even think about it. We just naturally act on that basis, but in India, they don't. There was a group of missionaries up in Sudan. Uh, They had identified a tribal group, the Didinga people, living in the forest in southern Sudan. Uh, unreached, no practically no contact with the outside world. But they talked to a few Didinga people who had come outside and asked about health care. Well, they needed it. And finally, the tribal leaders said, yes, please come in and help us with our diseases. So this team had gone in and set up a little clinic. It was a four-hour walk from the nearest road to get in there. So it was it was quite a stretch. There were a couple of families, young families. There were two or three single uh, missionary nurses. After almost a year, a crisis occurred. The initial rain had come, and that's when Africans plant their crops. They prepare their fields in the dry season. The first rain comes, they plant. And then the second, third rains, of course, uh, water the young plants. And then they can expect a good harvest. The second rain never came. And these little plants all dried up. And that was a disaster, a total disaster. They have no reserves. They had planted all they had. They had no more seed to plant. They had nothing more to eat. Now, In our culture, we would sit down, we would say, okay, now what are we going to do, and how can we get help, and so forth. But in the traditional tribal worldview, you sit down and say, who cursed us? And that's exactly what they did. They came together, they had a big discussion, and decided it was the missionaries. These were strangers, they had come in with their strange ways, and they had come in to destroy them. And late one afternoon, the missionaries heard a large crowd coming, and a whole crowd of young men, some of whom had AK-47s, came, took one of the men, a young Didinga man who had become a believer, and two of the women, hauled them off in front of this tribunal where they were formally accused of having stolen the rain and put it on an airplane and sent it to America. Now, how would you answer that? How would you defend yourself? We would defend ourselves, of course, on the basis of our assumptions of nature. But that means nothing to them. If we reject the act, no, we didn't steal the rain. 
that would imply to them, well, we could have, but we didn't. So what do you do? Y'all can think about that. That was the kind of situation in which they found themselves, and it was very, very difficult. So, actually, they left. Uh, because they were not able to find a link between the ding understanding of spiritual reality and the biblical understanding of spiritual reality. And that's why it is so essential that we have that. Okay, who is God? Uh, we'll just run through this quickly. This is Theology 101. Uh, he is who he says he is. We learn a lot about God from his names. And I've always regretted that when you go buy a Bible, you won't find Hebrew names of God in the Bible. They translate them into English. And these are nouns that you know, we kind of, well, we think we understand. We don't really. The Bible translators should put in the Hebrew names, then, of course, with notes as to what they mean. Elohim, which is the name used in Genesis chapter 1. El means the strong one. Ohim means absolutely faithful. Literally, the God who cannot lie. That's our God. Totally trustworthy. Totally faithful. Jehovah, or Yahweh, is the God who is. And God revealed this name to Moses at the burning bush. Not only the God who is, but the God who speaks. And so when you read from Genesis 2 on, the Lord God, it literally is Jehovah Elohim. And that means the strong God who is faithful and who speaks to us. That's our God. In total contrast to Allah, or the Muslim understanding of Allah. Then we come to El Shaddai. Genesis chapter 17. I discovered the meaning of that when I was in medical school. And it had a powerful effect on it. And it was a marvelous illustration last night in Walt Larimore's talk. Shaddai comes from the Hebrew word shad, which means the mother's breast. God saying, I am the one who cares for you, who nourishes you, who throws my arms around you, who cuddles you, who protects you, as a mother does her newborn baby. Isn't that amazing? That's our God. You heard about it last night. And we have felt his surrounding arms over and over again. And then Exodus 15, I am Jehovah Rapha. I am the God who heals. And then the name of Jesus comes from Yeshua. He saves, heals, restores, makes whole. Yeshua is an enormous word. We have no English word that can, can communicate all that Yeshua means. And this gives us theological problems. Because there's a similar word in Greek, sotera or sozo. 
which means save, heal, restore, make whole. So when Bible translators come to these words in the Old Testament or the New Testament, they have to decide which of these English words are they going to use. So when you see the word salvation in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, this is what it means. It doesn't mean just getting to heaven. It means total salvation from everything that destroys and repairing what the enemy has. This is our God. And all of these have practical implications for health. Okay, uh, I think we've pretty well covered that. But as we are dialoguing with people, here's our common ground. And a question that I strongly recommend to you as you're beginning to build relationships with whoever it may be, or even the Didinga people, tell us about the God that your ancestors worshipped. I remember doing that one day to one of our head nurses back in the 60s. Very smart young man. His father was one of our leading pastors. I said, Danny, what did your people believe about God before the missionaries came? He was silent for a minute, and then he turned and said, they had a proverb that when God is hungry and wants meat to eat with his bread, somebody dies. We were in a car. I was taking him back to his village for something. I stopped the car, and I looked over, and I said, wow. He said, yeah. That's what the ancestors believe about God. The creator God, that's pure fatalism. And that's the number one problem in development all over the world. That's why Haiti is going nowhere. That's why Africa is going nowhere. We've not gotten to fatalism. We preach the gospel of salvation, but we don't deal on this level. And until we are able to bring transformation of these basic assumptions, development just isn't going to happen. So, dear friends, study your Bible. Now, where does truth come from? And that word epistemology means the study of truth. Our Western culture, and that includes our evangelical culture, is based on Aristotelian rationalism. You don't realize it, but let me tell you, and you can check it out when you start studying philosophy. We are Greek Christians. We have been thoroughly Hellenized because of Aristotle. Uh, Aristotle believes we can understand truth through our sense observations, namely science, through reason, but not through spirit. Now, there are spiritual things, and there may be spiritual beings, but there's no reliable truth that comes from the spiritual realm. And Aristotelian rationalism took over the church in the 11th century, and we've never been the same since. And this is what it looks like. That secular epistemology. What is biblical epistemology? Revelation is the primary source for truth. But revelation accepts the validity of science 
and it's theirs, I mentioned. It accepts the validity of reason because God is a reasoning God. He is an intellectual God and has given us those same uh, uh, abilities that he has. But truth discovered by science and reason has to be checked out against what God himself says. And by the way, they are compatible because if we discover what is really truth in science, it's because God put it there. And if what we think we've discovered doesn't correspond with what God says, then we've got to rethink what we have discovered or rethink our interpretation of what God has said. And this is what it looks like. And I urge you, well, encourage you, study philosophy. Greek philosophy. Uh, other philosophy. So that you can give an answer to those who ask you to explain why you are a Christian. Now this comes from Daryl Miller, Food for the Hungry. Very simple diagrams that help us understand who we are, where we come from. This is biblical philosophy. God is the creator, totally separate from the creation. And that, of course, is radically different from the Hindu-Buddhist understanding of life. Uh, but God is active on a daily basis in creation and in every aspect of creation. Uh, here's the secular worldview. If God is, well, that's fine. If you like to have him up there, fine. You know, that's, that's, that's okay. But there's nothing practical coming from here. This is reality for the secular world. And unfortunately, from Monday through Saturday, that's mainly reality for most of us. We practice medicine with our white coat and our stethoscope around our neck and rarely think about God. And that's our problem that we need to deal with. But here's what we truly need to deal with. And this is our situation as evangelicals. And after Aristotelian rationalism had come into the church, the church obviously had to deal with it because we believe God is. He is exist. He's, he's, he's the truth. But he's upstairs. Read Francis Schaeffer. He describes this very, very uh, vividly, very accurately. And there are many others who have an understanding. But you see... Monday through Saturday we're here, Sunday and Wednesday nights we're up here. And the Bible has to do with our spiritual life, our attitudes and feelings and relationships, and, and of course God and heaven and that sort of thing. It has nothing to do with sanitation. Let me tell you, it does. It has to do with everything. We need to take that line out and reorient those circles like that. Because God is alive in issues of social justice. God invented outhouses. You'll find that in Deuteronomy. God is the God of cleanliness. He's the God of order. He's the God of marriage. He's the God of everything. And remember, God has put laws into every aspect of nature. So when we're teaching nutrition, 
and about essential amino acids and all that sort of thing. We're teaching God's truth. Because that's how God has created things. The laws of nutrition are laws that God has made. But of course, we rejected God's order. Adam and Eve said, uh-uh, we don't want that. They chose disorder. And so out of that disorder came disease and death. That's why there's so much suffering in the world. It's our fault, not God's fault. But God did not abandon us. Obedience to God's laws, which he has given us, does favor our health. Not a guarantee anymore, because we are fallen people. We live in a fallen world. But the laws of physiology, hygiene, and so forth are God's laws. And as we are doing education about health or whatever it is, in tribal peoples, Muslim people, whoever, if we can help them see that this comes from God and not from us, that makes a world of difference. Because when they can suddenly say, you mean God said that? Yes. And there's his word, and here's what we have discovered in our scientific uh, studies. Uh, <clears throat> another reason to believe that health is God's will, Jesus healed sick people. And he came to do his Father's will. But now I just want to finish up with a little personal story. If God wills our health, why are so many not healed? in spite of faith, prayer, and good medicine. Why did Walter and Barbara's little baby girl die? That's a tough question. Why do devoted Christian leaders die of cancer? Uh, that's tough. My wife is sick. She has myelodysplasia syndrome. Uh, idiopathic thrombocytopenia purpura. It's a genetic mutation of the genes controlling the bone marrow. And uh, her platelet counts vary from 10,000 up to 25,000. And she's been on chemotherapy now for a year. Uh, not getting any worse, but not getting any better. And we're doing all that we know what to do. We're doing a lot of praying, I can assure you of that. We're, we've been through inner healing and dealing with stress issues, memories, that sort of thing. But healing is not yet in sight. So why isn't God healing her? God does heal people. Yesterday I was with a remarkable lady nurse who spent many years in Kazakhstan who a year or two ago was dying of end-stage ovarian cancer. And now she's cancer-free. So it does happen, but it doesn't happen to everybody. In fact, the percentage is quite small. And that's an issue. But remember back in the third chapter of Genesis, as the separation had occurred, and God had to kick Adam and Eve out of the garden so they wouldn't eat the tree of life. He made clothes for them. <clears throat> he killed animals and clothed them with animal skins. 
Now what does that say? What does that mean? He clothed them with death. We are clothed with death. We get old. Degeneration, that's part of human life. Diseases come to Christians, to non-Christians, to Buddhists, to Hindus, to whoever. And healing does come on occasion, and of course through medicine, healing is coming in wonderful ways, but not to everybody. But, as I say, this is a deep personal issue. Can God heal Miriam? Of course. It's not happening yet. But we know and we agree that God's plan is good because he said so. And so every Monday when she goes to get her platelets checked, we say, Lord, whatever the count is, we'll accept as the next step along the road. Sometimes it's higher, sometimes it's lower. So we're trusting in God, taking the medicine, waiting on the Lord. And we know that one day those animal skins will be replaced. And the mortal will put on immortality. Well, here's some books that are helpful. People that I have used to whom God has spoken. Well, we've got five minutes. Uh, If there's any questions, let me know. One of the degenerative processes that's happening, and as I get more chronologically enriched, I have trouble hearing, so speak up. Okay, how did we deal with the fatalism that we saw in Africa? The answer is very, very simple. In fact, I'll be describing that tomorrow in my talk at 9 o'clock. And helping African people. I spent two or three hours in my very first dialogue going through all of this and going through what God says about latrines and so forth. But finally it got to the bottom line, well, doctor, we've always been sick. And I said, yeah, I know that. That's why we're here talking. Why have you always been sick? It's God's will. I said, you mean God wants you to be sick? And they said, well, yes, we get sick. It must be God's will. And I said, well, let's talk about what is God's will. Does he want us to be sick or does he want us to be healthy? Now, Congo is a Christianized country. The Bible, I had it with me. And by the way, don't ever go to a uh, health education dialogue without the Bible. I mean, it is the basic textbook. If you're in a Muslim context, well, keep it here, but have it here. Uh, We went through Genesis chapter 1. Everything God made was good, including the man and the woman. The Garden of Eden was marvelous. And I asked him, I said, did they get sick in the garden? They said, no. Uh, I said, were there any hookworm in the garden? Let's make it more practical. Were there mosquitoes in the garden? Hmm? We could take a vote on that. (laughs) Well, they got to talking about that. And finally I interrupted and I said, well, you know, Uh, The Bible doesn't talk about mosquitoes or about hookworm. But what you said is true. They did not get sick in the garden because that was not God's will. 
And then they jumped on me and said, well, then why do we get sick? And I said, ah, no, we got to go to the third chapter. You see, it's all here. But we used the story. I wasn't arguing with them logically. We were using God's story. And when they came to see that it came out of the rejection of God's order by our ancestors, they realized it's our fault, not God's fault. So I said, don't blame God for these diseases and disasters. And I think if that group of missionaries in Sudan had gone to the scripture, they'd have been able to deal with that conflict. But you see, we've got to use the scripture. That's the basis of it all. Yes, sir. Mentioned that um, there's only one God. Yeah. Um, but um, there's different understanding of this one God. Yes. So am I to understand that the Muslim and the um, different persons, they are worshipping the same God we are worshipping, but they just have a different understanding. How do I approach them with the thought that my understanding of God is, is more superior than their understanding? That's why that question I put up, well, can you tell me about, and usually it's, what did your grandparents or your great-grandparents believe about God before the Bible came in or before Christianity came in and so forth? In other words, what were the traditional beliefs? Uh, And get them to share their understanding. And then say, well, now... This is how I understand God. Would you like to hear about it? And then I, you know, start here. Uh, What God himself has said. Uh, And this is being done now more and more in mission circles. Narrative uh, evangelism. But starting from the beginning. And just sharing. And sharing stories. And talking about God not only as El Shaddai and Jehovah Rapha, but as the king and the kingdom of God. The fascinating thing is that as people are coming to understand the kingdom of God in countries like Ethiopia and Sudan and Iran and Iraq, they're coming to faith by the thousands. Because they say, now we know who's in charge and that he is good. Not good and evil. Okay, in the goodness of God and being obedient to God, uh, we have to quit because the law says when the time comes to quit, you quit. But let's just talk to the Lord. Lord, you've given us your word. It's a marvelous resource. Help us to so internalize it. Like Captain Sullenberger had internalized everything about aeronautics. So that we, it's just part of our nature. And when we are discussing, or talking, or explaining, we're using your word, and not just our own human understanding. Thank you for this time, and just continue with us through it today and tomorrow, because Lord, we know you're going to be doing some very wonderful things in many, many who are here. And we'll thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.